Morning, everyone. Good to see you all here. Thank you for the plug for Bible translation. Having spent 40 years of my life being involved in it, there is still probably a nearly 2,000 languages still not got a part of the Bible written down in them, so that's a challenge, isn't it? I never met Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. Uh, the closest I came was on September the 9th, 2015, in Newton Grange, where we were living, when she alighted from a train on the New Borders Railway and unveiled a plaque marking the opening of the station in our village. We were in a crowd separated by a steel barrier and about three meters, and she didn't speak to me, and I didn't get the chance to speak to her. In the event that I did, or the even more unlikely event I was granted an audience with the Queen, there are certain protocols you have to follow. One of my friends was awarded an MBE, and he went to Buckingham Palace, and there's a big room with all the people being awarded different things, and they were given very strict instructions. They stood in this room, he said, and then the guy in charge said, when you hear your name announced, walk through the door, walk up to Her Majesty the Queen, bow, she'll stick the award on you. Not those exact words, but something like that. She'll give you the award, and if she speaks to you, you can respond. But if she says nothing to you, just bow again and walk off. Now, however privileged a conversation with the Queen would be, there is a more important person than her. One she herself is subject to. As described in a lovely, I don't know if you've ever seen this, it's a little booklet called The Servant Queen and the King She Serves. It's one of the few books that are actually endorsed by the Queen herself, celebrating her 90th birthday. I refer, of course, to God. I'll put that on the floor and look at it after if you like. Which raises a question of really vital importance. How can we speak to God? Or how should we speak to God? Or to use the word we use when talking to God, how should we pray? And thankfully, this is a subject that Jesus, the Son of God, addressed directly in a message he gave to a huge crowd of people on a hillside in Israel when he walked the earth in human flesh 2,000 years ago. His message is, the message is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's preserved in the New Testament part of the Bible, in the Gospel of Matthew, written by one of Jesus' followers. And we've been studying it together over these past few weeks. Now we come to the central part in chapter 6. The central part of the sermon as Jesus focuses on prayer. So with this in mind, let's turn to our question, how should we pray? And we're going to listen to the reading from Matthew 6, verses 5 to 13. If you've got one of these Bibles, it's helpful to follow along. Um, it's page 970, and Liz is going to read for us. Liz, wherever you are, thank you very much. I'll give you a microphone here. You want the lectern? You right? There you go.
You could always speak up. Jesus didn't have a microphone. When he did this. <laughs> Just go ahead. I'm sure they'll follow. Lean over to me because I've got a microphone here. Wait a minute. Here's Ezra going to give you a proper microphone. Is that working now? Try that. And when you pray. Great. (laughs) Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, They have received their rewards in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secrets, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Oops, take my Bible as well. Well, there's an awful lot we can learn from this passage. Uh, For your consolation, I once preached seven sermons on this section. So rather than speaking at great length and great speed, uh, let me kind of summarize the first part of the prayer as we look at it together. We'll look at other parts in the next two or three weeks. So I'm going to say three things, and you should all be able to remember this because they all begin amazingly, annoyingly for some people with the same letter, okay? So stay with me, all right? So first of all, we're going to look at the pattern for how we should pray. This then, says Jesus, how you should pray. The you is emphasized. This is how you should pray in contrast to the other people who just described the hypocrites and the heathen who don't know how to pray properly. And the prayer which follows is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. It's on the wall over there. It's on the screen in front of us. It's one of the few parts of the Bible that in previous generations, almost everyone knew by heart and could recite by heart, though often without any meaning, which is kind of ironical when this is all about condemning meaningless prayers. However, the focus of what Jesus is saying here is not so much on how we pray, Rather than precisely what, it's not focusing precisely on what we should pray, the exact words, but on how we should pray. And rather than being a rigid set of words that you have to use all the time, it gives us a kind of template on what real prayer is like. And when we do that, we discover how radically different this prayer is from the pious praises of the religious and the meaningless babble of the heathen. And much closer to home, we discover how often it is very different from the way that we pray. Now, as with the Ten Commandments, if you know the Ten Commandments, the first half are all about God and the second half are about us, so we find the same thing here as we look at this. We find that we've got God first, look what it says. God first, it says, your name. Uh, It should be a slide up there. Where's it gone? Oh, is it there? Oh, sorry, it's on this one down here, sorry. 
God first, your name, your kingdom, your will, and only then we turn to our needs. Give us, forgive us, lead us. So often our prayers we find are purely personal and selfish. They reflect our own priorities and prayers. And this prayer puts things back in their right perspective. It puts us right in our right perspective. It's when we forget this, when we push God out to the margins of our lives, when we maybe only use him when we've got an emergency and ring 999, the heavenly line, then we lose our way. This prayer puts our agenda in focus, subsumed under the glory of God. The only place, paradoxically, where our true needs can be met. And later in this sermon, we'll see later in subsequent weeks, uh, Jesus talks about our normal concerns, our worries and maybe prayers about what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear, all the material things of life. And his disciples, he said, you should be different. He says, but seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. But the pattern of this prayer is not just a corrective to bring our lives and our prayers into their proper perspective. It's also a reflection of our personal priorities and concerns. So let me pause for a moment and ask you, why are you a Christian, if you are a Christian? If you're not a Christian, why should you become a Christian? Is it just because I have great needs, which I hope God will meet? Peace, joy, forgiveness, escape from judgment, getting into heaven, avoiding hell? If that is all, then your faith is purely selfish. Or have I become, become concerned above all else for the glory of God, for his name, as we'll see later, his kingdom, his will, in comparison with which my own needs take a second place, but then find their proper perspective. So first of all, this is the pattern for how we should pray. Notice secondly, he tells us the person to whom we should pray. The person to whom we should pray. At the beginning of this prayer, Jesus tells his disciples how they are to address God. I'm still not sure how you address the Queen. Uh, Your Majesty, uh, Queen Elizabeth, I don't know what you're supposed to say. But, but here we're told, when you speak to God, this is how you are to address him as our Father in heaven. Now, we may be so used to that, but... When Jesus said this, it would have been absolutely revolutionary and shocking to both Jews and pagans. To the Jews, the Jews stressed the transcendence of God, that God is far greater than us, that he's far above human beings. So the titles they used of God reflected what they thought of God, his majesty and power, their own fear and trembling in his presence. The people of Israel would not even pronounce the name, the special name of God that he'd given and revealed himself to them. By contrast, the pagans stressed the opposite, the nearness or what we call the imminence of God to earth. They thought of God in human terms, with human characteristics. And if you know anything about the gods of Rome and Greece, they're very human. But Jesus says his disciples were to address God as our Father in heaven. Now the title Father is used occasionally in the Old Testament, though not in any real sense of intimacy to refer to God as Father. But the term that Jesus used and the Aramaic equivalent, Jesus spoke a language called Aramaic, his mother tongue, it's 
kind of related to Hebrew. The word Jesus uses is the word Abba. And it would have been startling to the religious leaders of the day. It would have seemed presumptuous and over-familiar. Yet Jesus taught his disciples and teaches us we can address God as Abba, Father, and to think of him as such, to come to him with the same confidence and lack of fear with which a child comes to a father. You see, Abba indicates intimacy. Intimacy. Yet that confidence should not be over-familiarity. Neither should God the Father be thought of in purely human terms. There's a kind of popular view that went around that said, Abba means daddy. It's been demonstrated fairly conclusively that this is not the case. That's far too over-familiar. And Jesus qualifies the word father by saying in heaven. Our father in heaven. Heaven, of course, is not a place in space. It's a different realm in which God himself dwells in all his perfection. So unlike human fathers, God is not limited what he's able to do or to provide for his children. He's the God of might and power, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And in fact, Jesus is not teaching here that God is like a father. What he's teaching is that our fathers, even the best, are a poor, pale reflection of God the perfect father. So later in this sermon, again, if you keep reading on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks of the contrast between human fathers and the Father in heaven. Here's what he says. This is Matthew 7. He says, Which of you fathers, which of you meaning fathers, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, that is imperfect fathers, Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So again, let me pause and ask you some personal questions. Did you have a good father? Painful question for some people. Here is the Father in heaven who is infinitely better. Did you have a poor father? Or no father at all? Here is the Father in heaven who can meet all your needs and compensate for all that you've missed. In our first church, we had a man who was one of our deacons, one of the leaders in the church. Uh, He drove a a bin lorry. And he used to say to people, I grew up in Bernardo's homes, never knew my father, he said. He's from London, I won't do a cockney accent, he said. But I know God is my heavenly father and that's made up for everything. So Jesus taught his disciples to address God as Father. But note one other thing that you can easily miss. That it's not just my Father. Did you see what it says? It says, our Father. In his book, The Word Made Flesh, the language of Jesus in his parables and prayers, which I recommend to you, the American pastor and writer Eugene Peterson comments, prayer is always ours. With the hour, Jesus, we're, we're far ahead on the screen. Can you go back to the... Previous slide, thanks very much. Yeah, thank you, that's the one. Prayer is always our. With the hour, Jesus puts himself in our company. With the hour, we place ourselves in the company of Jesus and all who pray. Prayer is never solitary. We are never alone when we pray. We are with Jesus and all who follow him. Just think about that for a moment. That's why when we pray, all of us pray personally to God as my Father. But when we come together corporately, we pray to our Father, recognizing that we belong to the same family. 
Yes, God is my father, but the father has many children who join together in prayer to address him as our father. So marking their relationship, not only with God the father, but with his children, one another, brothers and sisters, in whatever church or background who confess Jesus as Lord. But who is included in the hour? Who may pray this prayer? Maybe you're here as a visitor this morning. Can you talk to God as my Father? Can you join him with the Our Father in heaven? Is Jesus teaching the concept of the, the fatherhood of all men? While this is touched on in the Bible, it's only in terms of God as creator and sustainer of all things, not in terms of personal intimacy. You see, this relationship of personal intimacy is limited to those God has brought into his family. This whole sermon is addressed to the disciples of Jesus. If you go right back to Matthew 5, verse 1. So, here's the key question. How do you become a family member? How do you get invited into the family? In the beginning of the Gospel of John, another account of Jesus' life, we learn it's through the coming of Jesus to earth. The first chapter begins this way. He was in the world, Jesus, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, Jesus, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. When we believe in Jesus and put our trust in him, at that moment, we become God's children. We are welcomed into God's family. And we're not just called his children. God does an amazing thing. He transforms us from within by putting his spirit within us to make us his children by nature. So in the New Testament, we read these words about this change of nature. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So again, the most vital question of all is this. Is God your father? Is the Holy Spirit living within you, witnessing that you really are a child of God and belong to him? If so, be thankful. Be incredibly thankful. Imagine, imagine going back to my first illustration, if you were able at any time, you know, you're having a low day and you think, oh, I'm feeling really low, I need a boost, I'll call the queen. You know, you're not going to get through. But any time you can speak to God as your heavenly father, even this morning. And if he's not your father, even today, if you turn and put your trust and faith in him, Jesus, he welcomes you into his family and puts his spirit within you. So you can know him as father. And there are people all over the world who need to know this. One of the most remarkable accounts of this is the story of a high-born Pakistani woman who grew up as a Muslim. You may have heard the Muslim confession. Allah Akbar. We lived in Pakistan. God is great. Emphasizing the greatness of God. Then God made himself known to her through Jesus. And she wrote a remarkable book. It's called, I Dared to Call Him Father. You can still get it. I recommend you, to, if you want encouragement, just read what a transformation it made in her life. Is that your experience? Now, there's a sure sign that if that is your experience, there's a sure sign that it's genuine. And what is it? Your priorities change. So, okay, the third P, all right? 
Thirdly, the priorities for which we should pray. Look what he says. He says, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And these three requests, as I've thought and reflected on them, and I've really not, there's so much depth in it, but let me try and summarize. I think the three prayers here, these three petitions, are linked together. All right? So, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is not a word we use very often. It literally means to make holy. The word holy means set apart, different. God is holy by nature, different from us. Set apart from us. So there's no way we can make him holy. It's not praying that. However, the meaning of hallowed in hallowed be your name is not to make God holy, but to make God's holy name known. That is his character, his true name and nature. And in a society like ours where God is excluded, discounted, denied, all we have left is what is merely human and unholy, where even the best of our leaders disappoint us. Our horizons need to be lifted to God who is higher. And in other societies, most societies on earth, and almost every society on earth, seeks God and prays in some way. Where gods and gods are worshipped, we need to pray that his true name will be honored and hallowed. So we should pray first and foremost, hallowed be your name. But how is God's name to be honored and known? The answer is, as we go on to pray, hallowed be your name. God's name is known and honored. Your kingdom come as his kingdom is extended. As God's kingdom grows and is extended. So how does God's kingdom grow so that his name is honored and hallowed? Well, when Jesus burst onto the scene, if you've been in this series, right at the beginning, he announced at the beginning of his work, he said, his ministry, his public preaching, he said, his strap line was this, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come. God's kingdom comes not by sword or armies, as past tragedies have shown, but slowly, Jesus says, and surely, he said it's like a little mustard seed that is planted and it grows to be an enormous bush in which birds can come and nest. And God's kingdom grows one person at a time. As individuals respond and repent and turn from their own selfish, sinful way of living and put their faith in Jesus. As individuals bow the knee and submit to the gracious terms of King Jesus, whose kingdom this is about. That's why this church exists. Hope City. To make and multiply followers of Jesus for the glory of God. So Jesus was not announcing an earthly kingdom that would challenge or as many in his day hope would replace the Romans. For as he said when, when on trial for his life before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, he said, my kingdom's not of this world. If it was, my followers would take up arms. But nor is it a kingdom that is detached from this world, a kind of privatized religion that doesn't relate or influence the kingdoms of this world. No, his followers, have, as we've seen already in this series, his followers are to be, he said, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. We're to live distinctly as God's holy people, showing by his work transforming us what God is really like. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So people might see your good deeds 
and give thanks and recognize there is a holy God who's at work in you. Let me give you a personal illustration from my family. Many, many years ago when I was a student, I got a job in an office for an engineering firm doing the wages. It was a pretty rough and ready sort of place. Pretty tough guys working out doing engineering on site. Uh, the office manager was a typical man of the world, and in his business dealings, he, he sailed very close to the wind, if not in the wind, whatever the expression is. Uh, one day, sometime after I'd started work, he said to me, what's your surname? I said, Granger. He said, Granger. He said, what was your father's name? I said, John. He said, did he ever work at Chesterfield Motor Company? I said, yeah, he did, actually. That was his very first job as a trainee motor mechanic. Well, he said, fancy that. You're Honest Johnson. <laughs> Such was my father's reputation that this man remembered. This is 30 years on, his character. I was proud of that, but, you know, I was also challenged to live as Honest Johnson. If we're God's fathers, God the fathers, sons and daughters... We bear his name, and so should reflect his character, however falteringly, to hallow his name, not just with our lips, but in our lives. And only as we do that increasingly will God's name be hallowed. People will understand and turn themselves, so his kingdom will be extended, and so his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the transformative power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Now, when we've prayed first for these kingdom priorities, does it not put into perspective my own prayer life? So often I'm concerned about things that concern me rather than, Lord, these circumstances I'm in today, these difficult circumstances, how can your will be fulfilled in them so that people see your character in and through me, often through difficulty and suffering, transforming? His will rather than our will. And of course, God willing, as we continue this series in Matthew, we'll come to the final chapters. And we'll see Jesus praying in his hour of greatest need. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, this suffering. Yet not what I will, but what you will. That is the challenge for us today. To submit to his will in our lives, whatever your own personal circumstances may be. And this is God's great plan. And the last book of the Bible, it's called Revelation, it's about the final revelation of everything. The last book of the Bible describes the final fulfillment of this prayer. Revelation 11.15 says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. So in view of this prospect, how should we respond? How should we respond? The New Testament book of Hebrews gives the answer. Listen what it says. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. That is the New Testament. Our God is a consuming fire. It puts our reverence and awe, our perspective, our worship in its proper 
perspective. Well, I've almost finished. Let me return to where I began. I never got to meet Her Majesty the Queen, and now I never will. For as you all know, on the 8th of September last year, she died here in Scotland at Balmoral, and her funeral followed on the 19th of September. Around three years after Jesus preached this sermon on the Mount, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. He died and was buried in a tomb. But unlike Queen Elizabeth or any other person who has ever lived, God raised him to life on the day we call Easter Sunday, declaring that through his death, his sacrifice on the cross, for our sin, not his own, we can be forgiven. And through him and through him alone, we can be reconciled to God, we can be brought into his family, and we can address him as Abba, Father. And since that day, that is the way, the only way that it is possible, but it is still available today because he lives forever. So I've given you a lot of verses. Here's a very final one before we pray, sing a song about it. Again, it's the book of Hebrews. Because Jesus lived forever, he has a permanent priesthood. He acts to intervene between us and God. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. If you are not a Christian yet today, I want to tell you that through Jesus, he can save you. He can bring you into his family right now. And if you are a Christian, however feeble you think your Christian faith is or your failings are, he can keep you because, notice what it says, he ever lives to intercede for us. He ever lives to intercede for us. So we can come to God at any time, wherever we are, and we can approach him and call him Abba, Father. Isn't that wonderful? Let's just pray, and then John's going to the group and he leads in the song. Okay. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can call you our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In my life, in our lives in this church, be glorified. Today we pray. And Lord, speak to any of us here yet who don't know that. Make it a reality. May today be a birthday party for someone here who is welcoming into your family and giving you a spirit. Hear our prayers, we pray. Because of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. John, before the throne of God above, strung perfectly. Let's stand together.